Today's reading is from Acts chapter 7. Stephen's speech. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. But when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as though they were, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? For the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler? and a judge over us. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, and he did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer 
by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, and images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Let's get into this. So our reading today was um, Acts chapter 7. A very appropriate reading. If you know anything about the development of Scripture reading, the church of the New Testament was actually born out of the synagogue, uh, which had developed in the 150 years or so before Christ throughout the whole Roman Empire. And a synagogue simply comes from the Greek prefix, prefix S-Y-M or S-Y-N, which means with. So symphonic music is sound that goes with each, with each other, sound that sounds well together, whereas cacophonic cacophony is sound that it's kind of like modern music no i'm just kidding ah sound that doesn't go well together and uh so synagogue it simply is a place that was with the word and the synagogue started with scriptural readings that's why in the gospels you see them hand the the scrolls to jesus and they and he as as their as a rabbi read uh, from the scripture and commented thereon. And when the apostles uh, went from city to city planting New Testament churches, they would first go to the synagogue to godly people who knew all the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi and uh, help them see 
that they were blind to the to uh, uh, the message of Scripture, although they had grown up taking pride in how much they knew about Scripture, and they knew uh, ten times more than, than most uh, Christians today. But they were being hit with what the Scripture was really meant to mean in Jesus Christ. And so um, when Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, he's actually just reiterating uh, the importance of something that all the early churches practiced from the from the resurrection, from the day of Pentecost on, uh, to have scripture readings as part of the of their Lord's Day celebration. And uh, traditionally, those started with Old Testament readings, and then as the New Testament was completed and so forth, most churches adopted a pattern of three scripture readings, one from the Old Testament. Uh, one from the Gospels, and one from the Epistles. Now, uh, that still goes on in many church traditions today. Uh, I thought Acts 7 would be appropriate because although it's a reading from the New Testament, it, it's a complete review of the Old Testament. It was a well-received message. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I guess not. <laughs> Didn't work out so well for Stephen, but for the purposes of God, it's recorded for us. So, in the past few weeks, we have had scripture readings from Acts 13, the whole chapter, Acts 17, the whole chapter, uh, one other chapter in Acts, and I'm forgetting which one we did, in Acts 7, probably Acts 2, I would guess. And so um, uh, what we are talking about here is element 4E, the fifth message on element 4, historical narrative of Israel. We're doing a series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. This is the 19th message in that series, and... We are spending a few weeks on each of these eight elements. Any any of these eight elements that are missing and you don't have the gospel. Uh, not in any sort of biblical sense. And so it's important that, uh, that you would understand each of these, um, the attributes of God, et cetera, and how they play. Uh, the, the number four is actually the, the most commonly neglected uh, in all modern gospel presentations, so much so that, to be honest, um, I used to do this series back in the 1980s, is the seven essential elements of the gospel, because I had not really, uh, after my first 20 years or so of being a Christian, I had never heard anybody postulate this idea before. And uh, as I began to discover it in the last 20 years or so, I... I was like, wow, we're really missing something big here, and yet nobody's saying this. However, a few years ago, I did find a book uh, by a, uh, an evangelical named Scott McKnight called The King Jesus Gospel, and he does hit this issue, uh, in, which uh, saved me because I have this, this idea that if you're studying Scripture thoroughly, and as you uncover and re rebuild the foundations that are missing, someone else will be seeing that and finding it. And that one was giving me a little scare because I thought, uh-oh, nobody's seeing this. But if we share the gospel, let's jump down to Roman numeral three, what we did last week. And I want to make the point that this sharing uh, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament is not some kind of option nor do we just see it in 100% of the gospel presentations of the New Testament, because in the New Testament, they were largely sharing the gospel to three groups of people, uh, the, uh, Jews, uh, biological Jews, I should say. They were Hel Hellenized Jews who had converted to Judaism from around the Roman Empire because of this superiority of, the, of, a, view, of a monotheistic view of God and, and actual commandments and in a defined view of truth and so forth. Pilate is not coming from a Judeo-Christian framework when he says, what is truth? Because he's coming from an agnostic framework saying nobody could know truth. So, um, uh, and then of course, they uh, the gospel spread, as you see in Acts 10, among what was called God-fearers. God-fearers were people who believed in the Old Testament scriptures, went to synagogue, but did not convert to Judaism because there would have been too much social or political or vocational cost. Cornelius could not have continued 
to be an officer of the Roman Empire and be a, and be a uh, convert to Judaism. So um, many people postulate that that's why they spent so much time speaking uh, speaking out of the Old Testament scriptures. But no, it's much more than that. And, and what I hope we can see by the time today's done, because we want to move on to uh, talking about Jesus Christ, the, solu- the solution, and, and start on Christology next week, the study of Christ. Um, what I hope we can see is that without the Old Testament scriptures and what they foreshadow of the gospel and the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, we actually have less than a complete view of Christ, less than a biblical view of Christ. Now, w- last week we compared the... Uh, I just just for a metaphor's sake, I compared the uh, the scriptures to uh, the Mississippi River, and uh, the and I uh, if 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 you follow that comparison, I was comparing Christ to what's called the Mississippi River Delta, a stretch of about a hundred miles, where all the all the great tributaries to the Mississippi come together at once, and before it pours out into the Gulf of Mexico. And if you will, all the Old Testament prophets, all the Old Testament history, all the Old Testament symbolism, all the Old Testament metaphors are the great tributaries to that river, which is Christ. After Christ and Pentecost, if you will, the Mississippi River flows into the Gulf of Mexico and what we know about the shrimping industry, the oil industry, all these things would not exist if that fresh water wasn't pouring into the salt water of the Gulf of Mexico and creating a brackish uh, environment that allows uh, thousands of biological phenomena and geological phenomena. So uh, so there's my metaphor. Um, so what we're doing here then is looking at five of the tributaries that come together, if you will, in the... Uh, in the, in the Delta of Christ. Last week, we looked at the last Adam. Had an excellent conversation with a theologian type of guy on Wright State campus this week, and we both uh, happened to be six-day creationists. But we both admitted you could possibly be a theistic evolutionist or some sort of uh, day-age theory or something and still not jump out of the bounds of Orthodox Christianity as long as you maintain that Adam and Eve are a special creation of God and that the human race starts there. Because without that, you got nothing. You've got no message of Christianity. If Christ isn't the second Adam, if, if we weren't made in the image of God, if we, if we didn't fall from that image of God, if we weren't infected by a, a, pro, a thing called sin that caused our spirits to die, then we what need of regeneration? What need of a rescuer would we have? What need of the second Adam would we have if there's no first Adam? Now, I personally uh, am, am a six-day creationist, but that's another whole subject. And I don't see the necessity to go anywhere else. Now, then we talked on the law of God um, and how Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the law of God. The Jews uh, looked at the law of God as being, as Paul says in Romans, I think we put a scripture there with it, a guide to, if, if, if those who are of the law saw themselves as a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the mature, because in the law, they had the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. Jesus, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6, a very popular verse today, that's somewhat been reduced in its meaning. He was saying that I'm the law. I'm the, the law was looked upon as what Israel was to teach the nations, the ways of God contained in the commandments and the, and the wisdom of God that throw, flows out of the commandments. And when Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't think I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, the Greek word there means to, to put it into force, to empower you to be it. In regeneration and in getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are actually empowered uh, to do the law. If God didn't like adultery then, he doesn't like it now. 
Um, when you really get down to any kind of spiritual problem, we were uh, talking about whiz kids and the inner city and so forth. You know, if you understand what we're talking about with case laws earlier in the series uh, and what all the implications of thou shall not commit adultery, what we have in the family system today, all the damaged people, all the, all the junk that we're dealing with really comes out of people not knowing that thou shalt not commit adultery is the is the only wise way to live. All 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 other uh, what came out of the the sexual revolution of the sixties was the culture of divorce of the seventies. And um, if you look at uh, the consequences of sexual immorality, sexual immorality, the you know seventy percent of of African-American kids today are born into a single mom. There's, there's huge social consequences to, uh, to, you know, there's a, uh, fantastic, uh, theological economic philosopher guy named Jason Riley, who basically just says the, uh, the, the way out of poverty is to get married, stay married and stay married to the same person while you raise kids. Uh, less than 8% of people who are being raised by their own biological father and their own biological mother are in poverty. So, uh, you know, these things have great implications. Thou shalt not steal. John actually talked about uh, stewarding your finances and so forth. And when I, you know, almost always when I'm trying to help people who have emotional problems, spiritual problems, financial problems, great problems, and so forth, you, uh, they have, they, they, you know, they start with not understanding what Malachi is saying when he says, don't rob God. It, when you rob God in tithes and offerings and you rob God in, in the, your work ethic, when you rob your employer by not giving him a good, honest day's work, uh, you begin a process of all kinds of consequences in your life that you don't want. You know, I almost never meet someone who's doing well spiritually that's a faithful person, or that's not doing well spiritually, that's faithful in their tithes and offerings, and faithful in their work ethic, and, and faithful in savings, and faithful in their stewardship of their finances. People who have emotional problems are usually robbing God and others, their employer and so forth. So a lot of the immaturity that we deal with, and, you know, we have a culture where we're 60% of college students today are women, 40% are men, because we are raising irresponsible men as a culture, and we're raising men that steal from their families. And they're, you know what, People look at me and they go, wow, you were in the kind of business where you would have made a lot more money if I had just played golf. And I said, you know what? First of all, I, I made over 100,000 years when I was in sales. And it was, I said, the, playing golf would be the difference between sending my kids to the best private schools and, or not. Now, I'm not against golf. We have some golfers in our church or whatever, but I'm very for not robbing, you know, not having the kind of husbands who have to have a cooler car or whatever whatever worldly thing the world tells you you've got to have that you're robbing from God and your wife and your children. Invest in their future, not in your current best cool TV set. So uh, let's get into, uh, on the second Turn the page over, and we'll get into today's stuff. So I broke all the rules of uh, of outlining by just arbitrarily putting a Roman numeral four right where we're starting today at the top of your second page. Um, but we're going to continue on the five reasons, which are not exhaustive. There's more than five tributaries to Christ from the Old Testament. But uh, we already covered the last Adam and the law. Thirdly, Israel. Jesus is Israel. Israel is Jesus. Israel is God's firstborn in the scripture. Israel is God's son. 
The church in the scripture is the new Israel of God. So Jesus is that delta once again, and the church is that Gulf of Mexico, if you will, once again, because the church is the, is the people of God. You can't understand what the church is supposed to be if you don't understand the mission of Israel. Because we have exactly the same mission that they never fulfilled, and that's why they were promised judgment if they didn't fulfill that message by Moses. And God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet to call them back to covenant faithfulness to their father as God's Israel, as God's beloved son. Yet they refused. They were actually prejudiced against the Gentiles. They were self-righteous. They, uh, they hoarded it all in themselves. Uh, much, of, like, much of Christianity today goes on behind the closed doors of the church. And guess what? We're not supposed to invite them here as much as we're supposed to go get them. Go ye into all the world is not, uh, not just something you can do behind closed church doors. So um, Israel is God's son. That's why it says, out of Egypt, I took my son. Now you look at every significant figure that Stephen is talking about in Acts 7, Abraham, etc., Isaac, Jacob, they all went to it, to Egypt. And out of Egypt, he called his son. Joseph, who's a great type of Christ, rejected by his brothers, uh, you know, the whole uh, coat of many colors that was that they put animals' blood on and, and so forth and showed it to, to their father Jacob was all foreshadowing of Christ dying for us, rejected by his brothers, killed by his brothers, but raised up out of Egypt to be the savior of all the world. Joseph saved the covenant purposes of God in the earth. The entire body of them. Every one of them. The, if, if Joseph, of course God's sovereign, so you're talking about ifs that can possibly be, but if you remove Joseph from the equation, it's over. There is no gospel, there's no Jesus, there's nothing. if Israel had died in the famine, so to speak. So uh, in Matthew 2, 15, after, after Joseph takes his son Jesus to Egypt, of course, God promises Moses that, and he promises Joseph that, and Abraham and so forth that your people will go to Egypt and that he'll call them out. And Moses, a, a foreshadowing or type of Christ, delivers them from Egypt through the wilderness, giving them the law, which foreshadows him writing the law in our heart, coming down from Sinai, which is, is symbolic of Pentecost, and writing the law in our hearts and our mind, all these things. He takes them through the waters of baptism, through the cloud of the baptism in the Spirit and the fire of the baptism in the Spirit and so forth. And Jesus goes through all the same pattern. Just like Pharaoh wanted to kill, stop the purposes of God by killing uh, Moses, so Herod wanted to stop the purposes of God by killing the Christ. And just as it will always be, just like it is with the abortion thing today, it's always the one who gets away that will be raised up from God to, to undo Satan's kingdom. Jesus is, uh, is delivered from such a peril. Herod kills, you know, Rachel weeping for her children. There's actually a feast that Christians celebrate, I think it's the 29th of December, called the Slaughter of the in in Infants, because Herod kills uh, all just like Pharaoh had done, but it was the Moses who got away like it's Christ who got away that came back to, un to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's why Jesus says, that, you know, they said, don't you know Herod's looking for you? And then you know, like, we should always do what the government wants us to do. Yeah, well, let's not misinterpret that. But he just goes, uh, 
go tell that fox <laughs> that today and tomorrow I travel towards Jerusalem and the third day I reach my goal. And uh, I'm coming for him. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, he came for him in very unexpected ways. He undid him by the resurrection. Jesus says to Peter, I, I also say to you that you are Petros, a rock, and upon uh, a small rock, and upon this Petra, a large foundational rock, I will build my ecclesia. Now, ecclesia is the word in the Septuagint, the Old Testament Greek version of the scriptures, that is used over and over and over again of Moses' covenant people, the people of Israel. They are called the ecclesia of God. They were called out of Egypt through all the process we've talked about into being, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to build a new called out people. The word church actually just means those who've been called out and assembled before God. Uh, and the gates of hell will not provide, prevail against it, which is a very militant view of the church. Gates are for defense. It doesn't mean we'll be cowering and hoping that there will still be faith in the earth and there will be the little faith, faithful remnant. It means we'll be on the attack. We'll be the army of liberation. Come and be rescued. Come and be liberated. Come and be delivered. Salvation means deliverance. Salvation with not, without deliverance from real enemies with real power is no salvation at all. It's just great theoreticalness. Uh, fourthly, the garden theme. Matthew 6.10, when Jesus has given us the Lord's Prayer model, which is kind of a, a paradigm, a, an outline for what we're to pray for and work toward as Christians. We're not a prayer that we were necessarily supposed to recite over and over again, but it's fine to do so. And all little kids uh, throughout church history, up until modern times, memorized the Lord's Prayer when they were growing up. That was kind of all Christian kids did that on most and almost all the centuries of the earth, along with Psalm 23 and the Ten Commandments and other key portions. And uh, Jesus says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the entire Bible is simply this. There is a perfect kingdom in heaven. It is a temple. It is the manifest presence of God. There is no need for light there because the lamb himself is the light. There's no day, night there because the lamb is always the day. And unlike planet Earth, which is given as, to, uh, for, as a metaphor that has darkness, and then it has the dawn, and the light grows and grows and grows until the fullness of the day, which is what's going to happen preceding the, res the, the coming back of Christ, uh, there's no need for that to happen in heaven because there's no darkness there. There's no more sorrow, no more crying, neither is there death or sin. And God's goal has always been to export that sanctuary into the earth, and that's why he created the Garden of Eden, and that's why he created progenitor couple Adam and Eve to, to be his vice regents and rule on his behalf. And they were to take the four tributaries that came out of the Garden of Eden and export the presence of God to all the ends of the earth. Two of those four tributaries still exist after the flood called the Tigris and the Euphrates. And uh, they were on what's today called Mount Ararat. The Garden of Eden is the same place that Noah's Ark landed. And uh, they, were to, uh, they were to export the presence of God till it filled the whole earth, till the earth became the sanctuary of God. Guess what? When they sinned, God didn't go, oh, no. What's I don't know. I don't know if I have a plan B. <laughs> you know, he wasn't like, oh, I'm so surprised. <laughs> Gee, I didn't have any contingencies for this. That was all part of the eternal decree. And Hebrews 13, 20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. The father, son and spirit had agreed that after man sinned, that, that God would send his son to rescue the earth and to keep the mission going forward. And the mission is uh, symbolic in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, that's why in Acts 7, 
And in Hebrews 5 and so many other places, they quote Exodus 25 that they were to, to make the tabernacle according to the pattern. They weren't supposed to, like the church growth movement that started in the 70s that gave us the mega church movement of the 80s. They weren't supposed to apply McDonald's principles, Henry Ford's mass industrialization principles, and create a you know mega marketing model of the church. They were supposed to take Jesus' principles of making disciples. Now, we're, we're 30, 35, 40 years into the mass marketing model of the church, and the biggest mega churches are around 34,000 people. Guess what? If you take one disciple and adjusting for uh, the fact that I'm not Jesus, so I, I normally take about seven years to produce a mature disciple. That's been my experience. And, uh, and, uh, when somebody stays put and has the foresight and the maturity to, you know, that's what the whole book, when the church was a family is about and slow church, people who hop around and don't get, don't get in any kind of real accountability and in real place where they can be nurtured and served and taught and so forth. They never grow up in the things of the Lord. But if you take and disciple someone for seven years, twice as long as it took Jesus, and then those, the two of you disciple someone for seven years. And then the four of you disciple someone for seven years. And the eight of you for seven years and so forth. In 200 years, you'll have four million people. It's not like the plans of Jesus haven't been tried and found wanting. They just haven't been tried in modern times. We have discipleship groups and so forth, but we mean... We mean kind of an informational discipleship where we take them through the basics and Bible study or something. But Jesus had a formational, impartational discipleship that takes a long time. It's as thorough of a process as raising a son. And that kind of process will turn the world upside down once again. It's not about how many poorly formed, poorly equipped, poorly trained people you can get through the turnstile. It's about one that you can get all the way through to maturity, to where they really understand the fullness of God and the fullness of Scripture, and they have the character and the anointing and the wisdom and the power of it all. Where they're not, they're not full of answers, they are the answer where they can say, like Paul said, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Think about it, the audacious, audaciousness of this statement. Paul says, the things you've heard and learned and seen in me, do these things and the God of peace will dwell with you. That's the, that, should be, that should be your goal as a Christian. When someone says, well, what? Uh, how do I come to know the Lord? How do I be a Christian? Just say, just hang out. But let's go for a walk on the bike path three times a week for an hour. <laughs> and uh, come on over for dinner. What? Uh, let's just do life together. And before long, you'll catch it. Because guess what? You're contagious. And whatever, whatever you have in you, people are catching. Whether you like it or not. You are contagious. So if you're unforgiving or bitter or if you're whatever whatever you are, you're you you're spreading it. So the garden theme becomes the tabernacle theme, which later in Daniel or in Daniel, later in David's time becomes the temple theme. God says to David, you're not allowed to build the temple because you're a man of bloodshed. It's going to be your, and it's always in the Bible about the next generation. People, I, I have a lot of friendly pastors that I'm friends with. And they go, to, they come to me and they go, you're 60 years old. Not quite. One more. Uh, I'm, that's important. <laughs> I'm still under 60. And, uh, and you hang out on college campuses. And everybody you disciple, for the most part, is under 35 years old, with a few exceptions. 
Um, joy meeting with Roy, who's over 35 every week, <laughs> but, uh, but not a lot over 35, but, uh, you know, uh, and they got, you know, like I, I had a pastor tell me, I realized that I couldn't do campus ministry anymore. When one of the guys I was discipling, their roommate came to me and said, are you his father? <laughs> and, uh, and he goes, I knew I was too old for campus ministry. And I said, wow, you were just get probably starting to get wise enough to do campus ministry. <laughs> so the, ta- the temple theme, David, David's told not to do it, yet he doesn't sulk or pout or say it's not fair or any of this. You know, he's not a modern Christian. Uh, he, you know, he, he, lays up all the, the the right materials and he gets from God the exact plans and he tells Solomon, see to it that you make everything according to the plans God gave me. Just like God said to Moses. So that moves on and of course there's the, the temple is destroyed in the first uh, or the second captivity, the captivity of Judea, about 586 BC or thereabouts. And uh, then Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, are called to restore and rebuild the temple, and only a small percentage, around two to three percent of Jews, actually get the get the big picture and go back to Jerusalem. The rest are dispersed among the nations and stay that way up until after the time of Christ. And um, they rebuild this temple, and uh, along comes this guy that says, "Tear this temple down, and in three days I'll raise it up again." Why? Because John 1.14 says the word of God became flesh, and the Greek word says he tabernacled among us. It's the Greek word for the tabernacle. He is, Jesus is the tabernacle of God. He is the temple. And he was, the reason he used tabernacle instead of temple is because he was itinerant. He was portable. But as things mature, eventually the, the tabernacle spreads from place to place to place into temples. And as truly as I live, says the Lord, all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. There will be biblical New Testament churches among every tribe, tongue, family, nation, and peoples in every city and corner of the globe prior to Christ returning for us. That's without understanding the Old Testament, you can't see that. You can't see that God always intended a universal people of God. And there won't be rich and poor in the church and black and white, and there won't be Korean churches, and there will be churches full of people of all persuasions. This modern heresy of the, you know, part of the, the one of the probably the most important principle of the church growth movement was called the homogeneous principle. You make churches of people who are like you. You go and plant a church and you attract people who are of the same color and the same socioeconomic status and the same uh, education status and, and so forth. And that's why it has mostly succeeded, at least numerically, in the suburbs. And that's not what Ephesians 2 is saying. And everybody separates Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which is, can be, could be, when you separate it, a radically individualistic interpretation of the gospel from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, which says that he broke down all the barriers. There's no longer female or male. There's no longer black or white, Jew or Gentile. There's no longer rich or poor. For you are all one family in Christ Jesus, and the world will never respect Christian Christianity as long as that's not modeled. Why would they? Jesus said, all men will know that you're the real deal if you have love for one another. And if we don't have more diversity in our churches, I want a church full of people with hearing problems, I want people that uh, are paralyzed. I want people that are rich. I want people that are poor. I want people that are black. I want people that are white. I want people that are well-educated. I want people that are poorly educated. 
I want people that graduated from public schools and people that graduated from the finest private schools. And I want us to love and serve and hang out with each other every day, all the time. And to learn how to transcend, you know, yeah, when I first started hanging out with Anvesh, who's probably become such a, a son in the faith that I can hardly pray for him without crying every day because I love this guy. Yeah, I had some trouble with his accent. He had some trouble with mine. And so, <laughs> and sometimes I'd have to ask him to spell what I was saying. Sometimes he'd ask me to spell what I was, <laughs> what I was saying. And, you know, and I still have that with Edwin sometimes. Just spell what you're saying. <laughs> and who would want a church without Anvesher Edwin? I wouldn't want to go to such a church. If Edwin's not going, I'm not going. You know how Moses said, Lord, if you're not going with us, I'm not going if Edwin's not going. <laughs> no, I, didn't, I didn't mean anything disrespectful to God or anything. Sorry. Um, but Edwin is, he's the temple of God. He's carrying the presence of God. How could I not be one with him? Believe me, I know I harp on this all the time, but this diversity thing is the most important thing that's being said to the church ever. Less than 7% of churches in America have any kind of diversity. And that, that cannot mean, we, we will never be respected by the world as long as that's the case. They will never come and say, you guys got more light than us. How do, you, how do we turn on that light? That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 when he says, you're the light of the world. People in blindness are supposed to say, help me see. We have our city, city of Dayton or whatever, but, but you guys have your city within the city, and your city's working a lot better. Can you help us with our city? That's what eventually they're going to say to Grace Christian Fellowship. You know, a, a thing that my wife and I cherish is that since the 70s, we've been leading people from college campuses to Christ and disciples. Some of them are in their 50s now. Lots of them are in their 50s now. And uh, there's never been a divorce. And it's not because we've had any ongoing influence. Most of these people we just know on Facebook or postcard or Christmas cards now. But they're all over the world serving God, and they're, and they're still married Today, seven out of ten people who walk down the aisle will be divorced. I don't want any part of that. When people come to me and ask me if I'll do their wedding, I say, only if I do your premarital counseling. And if I'm not convinced that you're mature enough for the, to, for the commitment, I don't think I'll do it. All right. Uh oh, I'm out of time. <laughs> Number five types and the great anatype. Uh, an anatype is the fulfillment of the type. Look at 5A and B. I'm just going to have to let you do it on your own. And you're going to have to see that uh, all of those are types of Christ. Abel shed his blood. In the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of Christ speaks better than the blood of Abel because Abel's the first prophet in the Bible and he shed his blood involuntarily by his brother on the ground and it cried out for vengeance from God. Jesus spread his blood voluntarily. He said, no one takes my life from me. He, spread it be, he shed it before the tabernacle of God in the mercy seat. He, he, it was spilled by his brothers. And, of course, Cain was the prototype of the world. And by the worldly governments of his day. And it cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And if you don't know Abel, you don't know Jesus. And I could go through each one of these. Maybe I will next week. Maybe there will be a part four F or something, four F. Uh, 
a people for God's possession. Point C down there in case I don't come back next week. I'm definitely not going to get to the apostolic inductive hermeneutic. <laughs> uh, that one you should know. Um, very different approach to scripture. In other words, that one I'm just saying, we need to learn how the apostles wrote the scriptures if we're going to interpret them correctly. And nobody's doing that today. You really have to, you really have to get into the mind and heart of the apostles and understand how they use the Old Testament to create the New Testament to get the right messages out of the Bible. Part of the whole point of Israel in the Old Testament is simply this. Look at the second verse there, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now then, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession or special treasure in some translations among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And in case you don't recognize those words, they are 1 Peter 2, 9. There's actually a, a kind of thinking uh, that we won't go into called dispensationalism that doesn't see the church this way and sees the church in Israel separate and all kinds of things like this. But the scriptures just don't really bear that out. First Peter 2.9 quotes these scriptures to the church. So, all right. Well, next week I'll decide whether I'm going to go on to Jesus the Solution or give you more of 0.5 types in the great antitype. We've done a lot of the types in great antitype in John's series, which is the very first series on our podcast called uh, uh, Christ in the Old Testament. And there's 19 parts of that, I believe. And then I did a lot of that over around Christmas time and on the 930 Sunday school podcast and so forth. So if you want to, to see, begin to see how to uh, find Christ in the Old Testament, we have plenty of information on that on the podcast in case I don't go there next week. Amen.